the more time we spend online, the weaker our connections to one another actually become. It's kind of a weird paradox, it seems, sometimes. And art is one way that kind of gathers all of that back up into one space, in the same way that a religious practice can. I think of, too, Charles Taylor, who talked about the difference between Kronos and Kairos. And he said this phrase, I'll never forget, it's a chirotic knot. It's kind of weird, but like Kronos being linear time, like the work of the day, and then Kairos being like a thickening of time, a three-dimensional experience of time, a transfiguration of time. The chirotic knot, it's like, oh, I just want experiences like that, where everything's gathered together, and complicated and full of life and mystery. And when I go to a gallery, when I go to a museum, I feel like I'm practicing that, engaging that kind of space. And we need more spaces like that. You're listening to the Theo Poetics Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Burnett, and my conversation today is with Michael Wright. Michael is a writer and arts advocate, and he works for Bridge Projects, a new Hollywood gallery connecting art, spirituality, and religious traditions. And he writes Still Life, a weekly newsletter that curates art and spirituality themes every Monday. In this episode, Michael and I discuss a poetics of enjoying art by allowing theology to be revealed through the art itself. We talk about how to bring a deep awareness to the engagement with art, how his own process of transformation comes through exploring poetics and curation, and we explore what intersections are possible today between spirituality and art in the contemporary world. For more information about our sponsors, ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. Hey, welcome to the Theopoetics Podcast. Uh, I've got a guest with me today who is an old friend and um, a wonderful advocate for the arts and writer. His name is Michael Wright. Uh, he works for Bridge Projects, which is a new Hollywood gallery connecting art, spirituality, and religious traditions. Uh, and he also writes Still Life, which is a weekly newsletter that curates art and spirituality themes every Monday uh, straight into your inbox. So uh, welcome, Michael. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for the, the invitation. I'm excited for our conversation. Yeah, me too. Well, I always like to start just by asking uh, our guests a little bit about who they are, um, what's formed you in your life to bring you to your work in the world today, and and give us a little picture of what you're up to. Yeah, um, so I, where do, where do I start? Let's see, I'm from Nashville originally, moved out to Los Angeles uh, a decade ago. Uh, I moved out here to do a master's in theology and the arts at the Brim Center for Worship Theology and Art at Fuller Seminary. And since graduating, I've just been kind of wandering around trying to figure out how to apply some of that thinking to uh, my own experience. I, I've done some work um, with uh, different schools and done some presentations on poetry as a spiritual practice. and. Uh, more recently, I actually started Still Life, and Still Life actually started right when I was graduating Fuller. I was looking for what to do next, and I found a blank notebook in a dumpster outside of the seminary, and I, I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I thought, you know what, I can start here. And I was impoverished and have a lot of financial wherewithal, so I just started checking out as many books as I could from libraries and copying and copying all the poems that inspired me. 
Uh, and so by the time I filled that notebook, um, I thought it was worthwhile to begin sharing that. And at the same time, I was becoming more and more interested in visual art. Visual art, not just as an illustration of the theology, but the art world itself. I've become fascinated by the institutions of LA and different museums and galleries and tried to begin putting myself in uncomfortable situations and being in galleries that I didn't feel like I belonged in and exposing myself to art. And what I began to discover is that spirituality was uh, a common and recurring theme in the art scene in Los Angeles. And so I had these two pieces here. I had this like personal anthology of poems and this growing interest in visual art. And so I decided to put them together in still life, which is what I do every week to kind of curate something beautiful in the world that pushes back against algorithms that tend to, only show us what's popular, only show us what's most exciting or most visceral and, and filled with conflict and try to find beauty in the world and share it uh, with others. So that's kind of uh, what I do uh, all the time. And now I'm working in a gallery called Bridge Projects, which I'm so excited to be a part of, helping do communications for them. And basically the main thing I'm doing right now is their Instagram account. Every single day I'm posting art um and emphasizing kind of spiritual resonance and letting the artists speak for themselves with their own artists their own uh, spiritual interest um so yeah really it's just a lot of writing and curation and teaching and just trying to invite people to um expose themselves to the arts and allow the art to be like a language for their own spiritual lives um so those are some of the things that I, i'm constantly thinking about and working on and um yeah yeah Thanks for sharing. Um, I love that image of curation versus algorithm, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. that, that there's a sort of like, it sounds like what you're developing in still life uh, is a sort of slow intentionality um, mm -hmm. toward uh, the poetic, whether it's expressed through words or expressed through, um, you know, uh, some other sort of artful medium. Uh, mm -hmm. And so like, that makes me think about the nature of beauty um, mm -hmm. as something that um, is non ne necessarily not propositional mm -hmm. um, and sort of calls to us, it sort of grabs us. Um, so could you talk about like, as you started to work toward creating that, that letter still life, like what started to grasp you? What did you sense was happening to you as you collected poems and then started to collect art? Like what, what was, you know, what was being formed in you as you pushed back against the algorithms? Um, you know, what's been, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Thinking about curation, um, what has been formed in me as I've been doing this act of curation? Well, I, I love how the word curate, the etymology of it is actually like, a, um, it was originally a spiritual guide. It's a, actually a, a, an expression for caring for the souls of others. I, I'm not claiming any kind of authority in what I'm doing, but I like that idea of curation and, and spiritual encouragement kind of going hand in hand. And yeah. so what am I like, what, how has that formed me? Well, it's definitely sharpened my obsession to like a, a fine point. And I've really like every week pushed really, really hard in the research that I do to find things that um, aren't necessarily on those well-trodden paths that we're all going on online you know one of the interesting things to me about algorithms is how it, it i mean google is using algorithms and search results you know these things are it's not just um twitter or facebook or instagram it's the way we engage the internet 
in the world through the internet is we, we end up only seeing what is most popular. We end up only seeing what, uh, reacting against what large media companies are wanting us to engage. So it takes a lot of effort and work to find beautiful things in the world that aren't just what's popular in the moment. It's kind of a, a recontextualizing action, which is, that's what religion is in its largest material sense, religare, to re-ligament, to bring back together. Yes. And I, I see still life as like a little weekly practice and trying to notice beautiful things and letting those things speak to one another and kind of create a little uh, haven where something beautiful that's um, larger than those words or that art could potentially uh, say. Yeah. It seems very incarnational to me too, because part of that, you know, re-ligare, that rebinding or re-ligamenting means that you're intentionally connecting with parts of the world that maybe don't get amplified very often. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're trying to have eyes to see the beauty that's maybe marginalized by the algorithm culture of our time, you know? And I think that that's really beautiful because it seems to me to have a, a deep connection with spirituality, a deep connection with the mundane um, mm-hmm. and the sacred everywhere, you know? Um, and yeah. And I also love that image that you shared of the, the etymology of curator, because that's what we call ourselves at the way collective as well. Um, because mm-hmm. I do see like what we do in our gatherings at, sort of as opening a spiritual space, you know, for mm-hmm. people to experience, um, to be transformed, to be called, you know? Um, and, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, there's a lot of resonance there for me. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, how you got involved with bridge projects, because it seems to be a really unique kind of gallery space and project in, in LA. Um, although you had mentioned earlier that uh, there, there's a lot of already sort of inherent connectivity between art and religion. Um, I, I haven't seen many galleries that intentionally are sort of bringing to the fore this idea of connecting art and spirituality. So, so how did you get connected with them and what is that project up to and, and, uh, and what are you, what are you doing there? Yeah. Bridge projects. Um, it's such a gift to be a part of that. I I feel like their vision is so, um, clear and really well articulated, uh, and cunning, not in a negative way, but like very carefully like trying to articulate what is the relationship between art, spirituality, and religion, and how can the institution enter that space in a way that is authentic, that opens up hospitality and room for others. We're trying, we're trying to do that. We're trying to be that. Um, and I first learned about bridge projects. There were a couple of salons that are happening every month around LA where these kinds of conversations were happening. And I was desperately, I wanted to be a part of it. And I didn't know how to get in touch with them. And I ended up meeting one of the directors, Linnea, at a, another poetry salon. And we talked for a minute and she subscribed to Still Life. And then I didn't really hear from her. And then three or four months later, she reached out and said, hey, I've been loving what you're writing. And it's exactly what we're trying to do for bridge projects. Do you want to be a part of it? And I, I quickly went down to the gallery as fast as I could to meet in person. And we talked for hours and um, <laughs> awesome. really hit it off. And so I, I joined the, the team and I'm doing communications with them, kind of helping with PR, social media and uh, copy media stuff. All the things that I've been doing at Fuller Seminary, kind of helping with this, this gallery. So Bridge Projects as an institution is decidedly uh, in between um, other institutions. It is a gallery. The, the work is for sale, 
but it is not religiously affiliated in any way. It is not affiliated with any uh, academic institution. And the, the spirituality aspect of what we're doing, the religious aspect of what we're doing, that is all um, expressed in the programming. So it's not like a gallery that's showing religious art or sacred art, that kind of stuff. You, if you Google those terms, you're gonna get icons or um, sculptures of the Buddha or Ganesh. You know, the, the religious art is its own category. It's art in the context of a religious ecology. But the kind of work that we're interested in is engaging the art world of Los Angeles and beyond. And so, it, Bridge projects can show any art. And then in the programming, that's where those conversations happen. Like, um, what does it look like? Like, what, I wonder what Catholic monks think about this new work that we have by Philip K. Smith. You know, it's a light installation. There's no like religious subject matter in it, but it is meditative. Let's hear what they have to say. Or what does Michael Govan, the, the director of Los Angeles County Museum of Art have to say? Let's have him. So he came in and he spoke about his friendship with the artist Dan Flavin and how Dan Flavin did art installations in sacred spaces. So like we're having these kinds of conversations that wouldn't necessarily happen in a normal gallery setting and it wouldn't necessarily happen in a religious institution or an academic institution. So it really is trying to be right in the middle of these intersecting worlds um, in order to discover new conversations, new relationships, new ideas. And um, it's, it's thrilling. It's really exciting to be a part of it. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Um, I've got to get down there sometime soon and visit. And Kara and Linnea, the directors, would both be excellent voices to, to chat with on the pod, for sure. Yeah, we might have to have them on sometime soon. Um, so, so tell me more about the programming that you're doing there. I mean, I, you've already mentioned a couple of things, but, um, but how, how are you able to bring, you know, a gallery setting like that um, into that sort of liminal conversation that you've named that's between religion and art. Um, like what, what sorts of intentionalities have you noticed that you all have had to employ in order to, to program those conversations the way that you want? Yeah, it definitely requires, uh, I mean, Kara or would have more to say, more um, insight here than I probably would, but uh, I'll just say it definitely requires um, layers and layers of intentionality thinking through of like who are we collaborating with how do we help them feel comfortable what does that conversation look like at that particular time like it is kind of it's not like we're doing a top-down like this is the kind of religious and art conversation we're going to have every time it really is uh, it feels like more of just a discerning experience like okay we're collaborating with the joseph albers foundation and they're doing a workshop on color and material well those workshops if you just went to that by itself it's not like there was some lecture from a theologian or anything like it was very much focused on color and material and working with how color interacts with itself and how different textures interact with our own senses but that is that that is a um and as, like the senses are an aspect of the religious life that needs to be engaged on its own terms. Joseph Albers was a Catholic artist. And although his work is like color and squares, like it's not something we necessarily think of when we think of religious art, but it has that drive and that desire to in, increase our intimacy with the world around us. Um, so it fits perfectly with the, the mission of Bridge Projects. 
And then on the other hand, we had someone like Michael Govan, who came in and talked on Dan Flavin in Sacred Space. And he said multiple times during his lecture, I could never talk about this at Lachlan or another gallery, but you know, here's this uh, Catholic reading of this very famous modern artist. So it's really just creating room for people to allow a religious reading, a spiritual reading to be a part of the conversation. We have another lecture coming up by an anthropologist talking about how natural light and Mesoamerican temples interacted with one another. Um, there's another lecture by uh, a light and space artist, Lita Albuquerque, who definitely has a, uh, an explicit interest in spirituality. And so she can bring that interest into bridge projects and share with the community there. So it, it seems like, and it's all very new, and I don't want to make any pronouncements for well, uh, our programming, but it, it's definitely emerging out of just a, a deep desire for hospitality, for um, opening ourselves up to discover a new conversation with people who may have not talked with one another before, and just kind of staying in that space, like trying to be intentional about the framing, but letting something new happen. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, do you have a sense for why perhaps those conversations aren't welcome at LACMA? Like how did, because religion historically, you know, has been central to many uh, periods within the history of art. And um, like, what is it about our contemporary setting that that kind of reflection is not going to to go down at, at a gallery like a LACMA. Do you have a sense about that or? Yeah, there, there are whole books written on this and I could um, share them with you if you want to put them in the show notes. Um, sure. Th there's, and here I'm talking not as a part of Bridge Project, but just my own like flailing around in art history and trying to understand what's been going on. But my sense is that what happened with post-World War II art is a kind of, uh, at least in America, like a rejection of traditions and an emphasis on the personal expression and the personal philosophies that undergird the work itself. So there's a, in my conversations with artists here in LA, I just get the sense that they've, as they went to art school, they had a lot of emphasis on a kind of critical theory that, that almost had its own religious formation on them, if that makes sense. There, what I'm trying to say is like, what I see in the art world is there are religious qualities to the art world. So it makes sense right. to me that, that there wouldn't, there would be a, um, a tension or a dissonance with other traditions that have stories and aesthetic uh, histories and uh, intentional uses for the art that don't align with the art world, museums and galleries are very, very new in human history. And they, the institutions themselves have their own um, communities, their own unspoken liturgies, their own uh, saints. And, you know, like it's wow, yeah, it operates in similar ways. So, I, anyway, all I have to say is I see some dissonance happening because I see a kind of religiosity uh, undergirding the shape of the art institutions around us. On the flip side, too, there's all this interest in spirituality um, that's becoming more and more common. And so that is exciting to me to see, like, well, where is this going to go? Like, how are art institutions going to allow space for artists to express themselves in spiritual terms? Um, that it just gets really muddy really quick. And some galleries 
um, I've gone to shows where they kind of uh, oversell what they think the artist is doing in the work, like saying that the paintings are creating portals to other dimensions. Or I've gone to other shows where they, the art is so clearly uh, engaging Catholic altarpieces and all of the text by the gallery is minimizing any spiritual reading at all, but it's so obviously there. So it, it, it just gets, it's such a murky gray area and there needs to be more clarity and more visual literacy for religious organizations and much more religious literacy for the art organizations. Right. Well, it sounds to me to be very parallel with, you know, basically modernism as a whole and the, you know, enlightenment and post-enlightenment motion of um, thought, you know, in a sense. And aesthetics, I think, is is deeply entangled in, you know, um, philosophy and the ways in which the the thinking that's come out of the enlightenment has influenced our world and I mean, some use the term secularizing, right? Like right. secularizing that's happening. And so like in, when I hear you explain some of that environment that's surrounding spirituality and the arts, it's not that, that spirit, quote unquote, is now absent from the work, but it's, right. less, it's, it's less centralized in terms of a specific conversation. And right. now it's sort of emerging in, in different um, ways or different mediums through the art itself. So rather than needing to particularize or traditionalize a certain religious conversation, it's, it's poking through um, the artists themselves embodying spirit, you know? And, and it's fascinating to me because I think that this is paradigmatic of what's happening with the larger conversations about religion in the West, especially uh, Western expressions of Christianity, you know? Mm. Um, because that's also fading from the landscape of our culture, you know, yeah. and in many ways. Um, and so, so it's interesting to draw these connections, I think, because um, it helps us to see, you know, uh, I think more clearly the trends that are, are happening in our society and mm -hmm. how those of us who still have a deep hunger for spirit, who have a deep craving for aesthetic beauty and just that sensibility are able to, um, not shy away from connecting them back together, you know, even I would say maybe like, you know, re them again, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And, and that we need places and spaces um, and conversations curated where we can do that, you know? And it's not about like a, a top-down um, trying to force things back into some kind of religious reading. It's totally, it's just like a, allowing, allowing the religious conversation to be, part of our experience of the arts like allowing that to be explicit and present because the artists are doing that in explicit and present ways um, there's just still this kind of assumption that it's not allowed or it has to be diminished in some way which i don't understand i'm not sure why that's still a case um, yeah well i think that there's you know in from my perspective there's um, a hyper reactivity to religious language and that's embedded in our culture today. And I think yeah. because of the colonizing tendencies of, again, Western moving Christianity there, there's rightful reaction to that. You know, there's, there's a difficulty to, um, you know, sort of rebind or re-entangle, you know, our, our world and all its beauty with, with religious namings and, you yeah. know, and symbology and, um, 
And so I thought, you know, I think you, when I heard you say that, you know, that we don't mean to curate these conversations like sort of authoritatively or authoritarianly, you know, yeah. or coercively. What I hear there is what I think you named beautifully in that article from Ecstasis Magazine. Um, this is that, that we need a sort of tenderness toward not only art, but this conversation surrounding art and spirituality. Um, yeah. And so, so yeah, I, how, how do you, I mean, even if you want to talk about that article that you wrote, like how do you explore this sort of these themes of visual literacy and religious literacy with tenderness and how do you invite that? Yeah. I, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is actually meeting and talking with artists in their own spaces. Yeah. And here I'm talking to Christians in particular, churches in particular, maybe pastors who are interested in this conversation that we're having. It's like, you don't have to, I would actually discourage reading anything and literally just going to experience art and talking with museum gallery owners and museum workers and doing a studio visit. I had an uh, artist friend say that doing a studio visit with an artist is like entering their cathedral. Yes. So I have found for myself like that kind of tenderness has increased the more I reconnect art to its source of making, which are people. This, these aren't just objects or commodities that exist alone. Like these, we as a human community have made these things. And some of the best ways that we can engage them is with one another. Um, I remember right. in LA, there was this event called the Church of Art. And it was done by these young MFA grads, atheists, uh, queer, very uninterested in institutionalized religion. But they did this event, this kind of performative event where they were enacting a church service, uh, like as if imagining what they needed out of a church service. So the sermon was all about creativity and how to navigate student loans. And the songs were about opening up to the, the spiritual source of the creative process and all this stuff. And it was beautiful. Wow. And so I went there and I met the artist who put it on and um, we've since struck up a friendship and um, she invited me to her house for just to get together with other people. And I started tearing up when I'm sitting around this table with all these people I know would never go into a church book, feeling just this, this, this um, sense of intimacy and friendship. Um, around their work. And then that experience has, and experiences like that have affected how I engage art on a regular basis now. I go into a gallery and with that tenderness in tow, because it's like, these are people who have made this. This is an expression of someone's inner life. Yeah. This is, you know. And so I think that um, the pro professor here at Fuller Seminary, Amy Song, talks about flipping hospitality on its head. I am not the host, the artist is not the guest. I am a guest in spaces I feel uncomfortable with and unfamiliar with. And the more I enter into those spaces and the more I learn from the people who are engaging in the arts in those spaces, that tenderness is like a natural result. You know, it's a desire to understand the work because I care about the person. And um, yeah, so it's, it's less about a top-down interpretation or trying to bring my hands and wonder how am I going to get the arts back into the churches? It's literally just, you know, there's a, there's a museum across the street from Fuller Seminary and we have not had a good relationship with them for years. 
Mm. Like, what if we had just dropped all of our goddamn books and walked over there and had a conversation right. and built relationships, you know, and, and had a meal? Like, right. that's, the, that's where the tenderness comes. It's not mm. about ideas. It's about these are material expressions of the human spirit. So how do we um, reach out to the humans who did it and begin to learn about their lives and our lives through that encounter? Right. I, I hear it, you use this phrase earlier that art is an expression of one's inner life. I think that's so well put, you know, um, and like you said, this sort of material, even expression of spirit. And I think, you know, I think oftentimes metaphysically about this um, in the sense that that what modernity also has done is pulled apart spirit and matter. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's sort of. Mm -hmm you know, what, what Whitehead um, would call bifurcated them, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and so like, this seems to me, this is just such a beautiful theme. I just could see continuing in our conversation today, but um, that, that it's a bringing back together, you know, of, yeah. of those things that have been, been separated out. Um, and I think our world in so many regards is just fragmenting and yeah. especially, you know, in, in the West, in horrific ways. And we're yeah. losing hu our humanity. We're losing our dignity. We're yeah. losing, I mean, I would even use the word soul, you yeah. know, um, uh, in our society. And so to, to bring this tenderness to, to a sort of presencing um, in art spaces and with artists mm -hmm. and people um, seems to me to be such a, a, I would almost even say prophetic call um, back to tenderness, back to presence, back to, um, to heart, you know, and I just, you know, thank you for, for bringing that to light. Um, yeah, it's, it's something I, I care very much about. You know, I think of Leonard Cohen saying, God bless the continuous stutter of the word being made into flesh. Right. Um, or I have, I pulled a quote up here by Lawrence Rinder, um, an art writer, art possesses a unique capacity to embody consciousness. So, you know, there's a certain kind of um, expansiveness that when good art has that invites us into new insight and new conversations and it thickens our sense of one another. Like, I think you're so right. Like we're, we're not only just fragmenting, but we're also like thinning out our sense of the humanity of one another. Yes. Um, the more, uh, more time we spend online, the weaker our connections to one another actually become it's kind of a weird paradox. It seems sometimes. Um, and art is one way that kind of gathers all of that back up into one space in the same way that a religious practice can. I think of two of Charles, Charles Taylor, who talked about the difference between Kronos and Kairos. And he said this phrase, I'll never forget. It's a chirotic knot. It's kind of weird, but like, uh, you know, Kronos being linear time, like the work day, work week, and then Kairos being like a thickening of time, a, a three-dimensional experience of time, a transfiguration of time. Right. And um, the chirotic knot, it's like, oh, I just want experiences like that where everything's gathered together and complicated and full of life and mystery. And mm. um, we need, when I go to a gallery, um, when I go to a museum, that, I feel like I'm practicing that. I feel like I'm practicing engaging that kind of space. And we need more spaces like that. Mm. Do you, I mean, and this might be, you know, difficult to uh, explain, but do you have a sense for, um, 
or maybe an invitation even for how we can invite that chirotic knot, you know, like, like, yeah. because I think there, you're, you're naming a couple of elements that I hear. One is that there's a sort of tenderness and presencing that you bring to being attentive, but then there's also, you know, that you can't be in a knot by yourself. You know what I mean? So there's something right. calling to you in per, perhaps again, an, an art um, medium and, or um, a space that you're engaging but what are you what are you sensing i think is is part of my question as as a way to be open to that that nodding you know um like and and how are you learning to to posture yourself? I know you've said you've done it many times but is is there a, a method to your to your presence is there something you're seeing being built in you is it becoming a, a rhythm that you you do when you go into those spaces like how are you bringing that kind of attention to to that, that nodding together. That's a great question. I, you know, I'm. Um, I, I think of um, Alison Mutterman's poem because these failures are my job. You know, it's 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 a constant failure, and a, a constant like, what am I drawn to? Why am I drawn to this? What is this? Yeah. Why am I feeling this way? Why is this not working? Oh, I, I want to invite people in here. Why do I want to invite people to see this with me? Like, oh, how do I do that? How can we see art together? You know, how do I? It's it's those kinds of failures and, and that kind of um, oh man, that relentless uh, drive towards humility. Not humility in the sense of like some kind of virtue. I mean humility in its uh, most literal sense of humus of earth of getting our feet back on the ground of being open to our own insecurities and failings and uh, false starts being open to the art that's in front of me and being open to understanding uh, that I might need to learn something new like that when I think of that chirotic knot right now in my life I've realized that I am a recovering disembodied head like I have lived yeah. for too long in my own mind and right. it is my own body. And I even learned this at the Theopoetics Conference too, like this idea of the unruly body or this idea of the body having its own language, the body being able to communicate its own voice beyond just our own minds. And I find that what I'm drawn to has been too intellectual. And I'm also learning that I need to engage the world through my senses and in a newer way, a deeper way. Um, so it's that, I don't know, it's just like, it's this invitation to continue. It's theosis, right? Like being drawn towards a better version of myself yeah. in my glimpses of Christ and others and my glimpses of beauty and art, you know? Hmm. It, it actually reminds me of Mark Doty, a poet. I'm going to share this quote with you. A couple, a couple lines about um, his own experience of a, of a painting. And it really, uh, it, it inspired still life when I first got started. He says this, I have fallen in love with the painting, though that phrase doesn't seem to suffice, not really. Rather, it's that I have been drawn into the orbit of a painting, have allowed myself to be pulled into its sphere by casual attraction, deepening to something more compelling. I have felt the energy and the life of the painting's will. I have been held there, instructed, and the overall effect the result of looking and looking into its brimming surface as long as I could look is love, by which I mean a sense of tenderness toward experience, 
of being held within an intimacy with the things of the world. Mm. Mm. That's gorgeous. Um, that's what it's about, you know? I mean, uh, wow. I'm speechless for a moment here. Um, it's a great, great book. I um, highly recommend it. It's called Still Life with Oysters and Lemon. And he talks about that, that uh, desire for intimacy with the world. And the arts as a sensory language helps us engage our five senses in greater intimacy with the world. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is for me, again, this is when I, when I said, this is what it's about, you know, I, Uh I think that this um, migration from head and knowing through the intellect and logic and Mm -hmm. reason um, to a sort of corporeal knowing, a heart knowing, an embodied Mm -hmm. knowing is again, one of these um, movements of our time as we, as we sit, you know, in this postmodern environment that's starting to rekindle, I think these conversations around aesthetics and experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I, I just am, I'm, I'm so hungry myself for that that kind of living and you know the people that i i you know i walk with in the community that we're a part of up here are Mm -hmm. also hungry and i think that there's a there's a um either a lack of naming or an inability to name or perhaps even um a sort of um fear of naming that that sensibility again because People, you know, in, in our world have been hurt um, yeah. by religion in particular, more probably than yeah. the art world. But, um, but, and what it means to actually reclaim that again or to name it anew is, is vulnerability. And I love that you used sort of humility in, in the, you know, again, the etymology of the, the hummus, of, of the, the earthiness of that. But, but there's, you know, there's a real need right now. I think a deep desire um, for people to open themselves back up again. You know, mm-hmm. Charles Taylor, who you mentioned earlier, also talks about how in the postmodern world we can uh, we can basically live our lives buffered, meaning keeping mm-hmm. walls up, mm-hmm. porous. You know, mm-hmm. and so it's this sort of like porousness of learning to walk again at a heart level, being vulnerable, moving through the world, being affected by the world. And in this, in this instance of this conversation by art, um, that teaches us that very human, uh, way of knowing again, or invites that in us at least, you know? And like you said, I, I love that you have talked about how you need to keep doing it over and over again. You keep failing, but, but you have this sort of insatiable, now I to try to be there to try to to be in that place and um again I just think that's a beautiful offering for for those of us who are moving through this postmodern environment with a deep spiritual desire a deep hunger for presence but um perhaps a fear um of of going there again you know Um, yeah and it's so it's so necessary I think it it also encircles conversations of meaning and value of, of of life um, and beauty, obviously. Um, and, and how we can, you know, this is, this is all sort of, you know, again, just like naming, like how we can be fully human, 
know? Yeah, it, and and to find the the art and poetry and music and dance and everything that um, becomes a its own cloud of witnesses for us as we move through our lives, you know. And, and again, it's not like I I've been start I started on this journey with finding a, a notebook in a dumpster. Like it it requires nothing other than just beginning to wonder what's out there. And or more recently I realized I know so little about Buddhist art and Islamic art and Hindu art. So I checked out a few books just to see like, oh what's this about? You know, what are all these arms about? You know, why is this guy painted blue? You know, those kinds of, um, you know, all we need is just an insatiable desire to know more, to know that we are ignorant and to be, you know, have a kind of curiosity that, um, can be an engine behind our, our growth. And it really is, just as easy as Googling, um, you know, I realized like, oh, here's an example. I realized early on that I was only sharing poetry and visual art by white males. I was not doing that maliciously, intentionally. It was my own ignorance projected out into the world that I was only looking for one kind of experience in the world. Yeah. And so then I just started Googling black poets. Uh, Latino artists, you know, or um, Chinese poetry, you know, just began pushing the bounds of my knowledge towards something larger than myself. And that just requires, all that requires is just curiosity and continual choice. Mm. And I'm still working on that. I still fail at that, you know. Yeah. I think that's beautifully said, though, because... um curiosity being a key word there is um is a a pushing back against homogeneity you know what i mean yep like curiosity inherently is going to force um multiplicity and connection and plurality in beautiful ways so Mm -hmm. um so thank you for again naming that and inviting us to to continue to consider the ways in which we can um we can do that work um I also wanted for a moment, if we could, to explore uh, just a couple of themes from the presentation that you gave at the Theopoetics Conference earlier this year. Yeah, sure. Um, called the Expanded Field, Theopoetic Sketches for Engaging Visual Art. Um, one of the lines I wanted to, to quote you uh, on and ask you to expand upon, because I think it speaks to, again, this division and this coming back together that we've been visiting. Um, you said that instead of theology and the arts, two distinct static academic disciplines, we considered a different form of their meeting as theology through the arts, guests in an ongoing process of embodied engagement that leads us to greater intimacy and tenderness and embodiment with the living world. Um, Again, I think we've explored a little bit of this thematically, but I would love to just bring a little bit of the, the theopoetics or the theology now into the conversation um, maybe could you expand upon um, what you're seeing as you as you talk about theology through the arts and how that is transforming your own theological perspective rather than maybe coming to this initially with thinking that, you know, it was going to be theology and the arts as, as two separate entities. 
Yeah, I think that proposition is just so key. Um, theology and the arts, there is an assumption within that phrase, there is an assumption of separate and distinct fields of knowledge. Now, that is true on an uh, academic history level. Like, there is theology as a discourse and art as a discourse. But the and separates them out into two separate things. And in my own life, for years, I have not experienced them as separate things. One of the parts of my life that we haven't touched too much on, but I, I've had some mental health issues over the years and some depression that was undiagnosed and I misinterpreted as doubt in like college. And um, it was music and art that acted like friends to me. Uh, not just the relationships I, I had in my family, but also like a song by Over the Rhyme that I like listened to over and over, like lying on the on the floor, and the, that music was kind of drawing me towards the future when I felt like I couldn't get there myself. So theology and art—it's limiting because it automatically um, separates out and categorizes things that are much more integrated in our daily life. Which is why I think theology through the arts or theopoetics, that's how I came across theopoetics as a discipline. That's why that is so interesting to me because in that sense, then art making, art appreciation, those can be means of engaging theological ideas on their own terms. Yeah. And yeah, so I guess I'm still sorting. I, I kind of backed into theopoetics. I didn't read in, in many of the texts. I was realizing that what I was doing with the art was theopoetical. <laughs> right. And I discovered you guys that way. Um, yeah. Well, I think that, that that's beautifully, again, um, illustrated in that, that movement from and to through. You know, that's right. very much so, like you, like you said, resonant with theopoetics and... I think I'm also curious if you've, um, I mean, I would, I would obviously begin by saying that everything we've already done on this, in, in this conversation is theology, right? right? But for you, if there are any sort of particular gleanings, um, yeah. learnings that, that are actually relate to how you, you theologize or how you understand the divine, um, yeah. uh, as you have shifted this this methodology to the the through the arts thing, um, what what is it changing in your in your own perspective? Yeah, I think um, one book that comes to mind that actually has been very formative for me was Douglas Burton Christie uh, wrote this book called Blue Sapphire for the Mind: Notes Towards a Contemplative Ecology, and his language of con contemplative ecology has really stuck with me. Um, he has this quote, I'll share this. We still possess the capacity for living with a fuller, more encompassing vision of reality, but it must be retrieved. The imagination itself must be made whole. So he talks about um, how the spiritual journey and the, the um, natural, like he's talking about contemplative writers and nature writers and how they share the same journey of reweaving the torn fabric of the and resensitizing ourselves in an intimate experience of, of life itself. So that book was really formative. 
Um, I think of Dwellings, A Spiritual History of the Living World by Linda Hogan, Chickasaw poet who has these lovely essays on the exact same themes of just re-entering the world in a new way, uh, in a new, more embodied way. And, and honestly, a lot of this thinking and research has come as I was dissatisfied with theology as a discipline as far as books to read and articles to read. And so I, um, I've also been inspired by like, practitioners like Sister Karita Kent um, or Sister Wendy Beckett, two nuns, two very different nuns, one who worked really hard globally about art appreciation, Sister Wendy Beckett, Sister Karita Kent engaged culture around her, made pop art, did this amazing teaching um, here in Southern California. So, yeah, is that kind of what you're you're looking for? Or Ab that, absolutely, yeah. I think, yeah. you know, I think for me in terms of, I mean, because I, I can get into my head just like any other theologian, you know, and do the mm -hmm. rational, empirical, speculative inquiry of mm -hmm. metaphysics. And I have my own opinions about that or whatever. But honestly, when it comes down to it, one of the things that I would say is like, if you want to know about my eschatology, just let me give you this poem. Right. Like, exactly. It doesn't, exactly. It doesn't make any sense. Like to somebody yeah. who's looking for an answer. Yeah. I mean, but let me illustrate for you the kind of experience that I have of something like an eschatological moment, you know, like, right. and that says more, you know, to me than me writing an essay on, you know, like, well, here's what I actually think is happening in divine reality and what we mean. <laughs> like, you know, and I, and again, I'm not, I'm not um, belittling or demeaning that pursuit either because I actually enjoy um, that kind of, if for me, it's fun. It's cause it's never like about getting the right answers. It's about, right. it's about the, the, the search, you know? Right. Um, and, and so I, what I mean is, you know, just sort of bringing to light that, that for me, there's, there's this sort of like muting of all logic that right. aesthetic sensibilities invite in us, you know? And that sometimes the, the poetics of theological expression says more about hope or more about love than, than just sheer, you know, um, yeah. Reading a, a treatise on it or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of um, what you're saying reminds me of Virginia Woolf, who said that life is not a series of gig lamps symmetrically arranged, but life is a luminous halo surrounding us from the beginning of consciousness to the end. So not a series of big lamps, but a luminous halo, which, right. and that, that kind of sense of um, uh, openness to mystery and wonder, the one theological text I really learned a lot from in preparation for the Theopoetics Conference was Richard Kearney's Anatheism. And he kept on talking about the anatheistic moment, which is that kind of luminous halo um, or that kind of, um, that larger, more embodied, experiential knowledge that kind of mutes our logical rational self he calls it like an epiphanic moment of awakening the advent of the strange or he says it's um sacred enfleshment the spiritual epiphany of welcoming like i i love that language yeah um, the, the trick that i what i can't really figure out right now is like what's the difference between that kind of openness to mystery and that kind of desire that, uh, for um that kind of welcoming in our lives what's the difference between that and agnosticism <laughs> i yeah. do not know yeah and maybe yeah. maybe it's okay to be a faithful agnostic you know oh absolutely yeah i i think 
at least one of the the distinctions that that I might invite is that usually there there's not only the experience but there's a coupling of that experience with a naming of something like love right mm. and it's not it's not prop again it's not it's non-propositional in the sense of making a claim about existence or non-existence of god but there's a sort of mystical naming that that occurs um mm. in your in your subjective experience of that mm. you know and so I think, but I, that the thing about this is I think that people are experiencing and naming this all over the place that has nothing to do with religion. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. so that's where, I mean, I think that there's this, you know, this invitation to, you know, what, what did Aquinas say that every, all of his like thoughts became like a pile of straw. Yeah. You know what I mean, for a moment of experience, and then you have yeah. to sort of move back into the world, the dualistic world that we live in, that we make our way through with our, you know, our 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 sense making with our language, which is dualistic. And you know what I mean? And yeah. yet, yet I think expressing those sort of ineffable experiences with poetic language actually sets up sort of what I would call like a mystical boundary that is that is actually mm. an invitation to go beyond. You know what I mean? Mm. That's the mm. point. The point is that our languaging of this invites us to move through the poetics into a uh, an experience or a presence that we can't name, you know. And it makes me think of a, a couple different Buddhist parables, like one where the Buddhist said, "Like the Dharma is like um, a canoe, and once you cross over the river, you you leave the canoe behind. You don't you don't take the canoe with you. Like you're you're yeah. done with it." Yeah. Or like um, the Dharma is like a finger pointing at the moon, you know, or um, uh, Theodore Rutke has his book called Straw for the Fire, where you need, you need the straw, you need it to start the fire, but it's, it's not the same thing, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I kind of hear I, and what you're saying is like, it's still like, we need language, we need rationality, we need naming in order that we don't just kind of uh, float into this diffused um space but like it helps us we we need it insofar as we can move beyond it right and then do it again and then do it again yeah yeah it's a, and it's a dance back and forth it's a cyclic sort of a cyclical thing you know um yeah and i think yeah i think that's again really well said by you so well um i think we're coming to a close here uh and this has been a really wonderful conversation and and i thank you again for um for coming on, for spending some time, and for bringing all of your, you know, dedication and heart and mm. curiosity and imagination to to this, because it's so it's so inspiring. So thanks again for that. Well, thank you. I, it's um, I feel like a bit like a water hose. It's because I'm not usually talking to people about this stuff who understand where I'm coming from. Right, right. So it's it's good to it's good to chat. Mm. Where can people keep up with you on, um, like where they can follow along with your work, where they can find you? Um, the best way, honestly, um, is the Still Life newsletter, and that's tinyletter.com slash still dash life. And that's my main social media. And then I'm also on Twitter uh, at mjeffreywright and Instagram at Mr. Michael Wright. So those are different avenues people can get in touch with me or they can send me a letter or we can run into each other at uh, the local store <laughs> or they can do smoke signals or whatever they want to do. It's fine. 
but then the still life is the thing that I'm most excited about and where I try and work out our conversation uh, in a weekly practice. Um, yeah. Can I um, share a poem at the end here? Absolutely. This poem that I feel like uh, ties up a lot of the themes that we're talking about that is a, I've learned a lot from this poem that I wanted to share with you. And it's by Alison Letterman, who was actually at the Theopoetics Conference. Mm. She was a part of the Interplay group. Uh, but it's this poem, Because These Failures on My Job. This morning, I failed to notice the pearl gray moment just before sunrise when everything lightens. Failed also to find birdsong under the grinding of garbage trucks. And later, walking through woods to stop thinking, thinking for even five consecutive steps. Then there was the failure to name the exact shade of blue overhead, not sapphire, not azure, and not delt, to savor in soft squelch of pine needles underfoot. Later, I found the fork raised halfway to my mouth while I was still chewing the last untasted bite. And so it went until finally, wading into sleep's thick undertow, I felt myself drift from dream to dream, forever failing to comprehend where I am falling from or to. This blurred life with only moments caught in attention's loose sea, tiny pearls fished out of oblivion's sea laid out here as offering or apology or thank you. It's wonderful. Yeah, um, well, thank you. And thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for being in for the conversation. Oh, yeah, no problem. Well, thanks again for being here, Michael. And uh, I hope to get down to LA to connect with you again soon. And many blessings on your work. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Theopoetics Podcast. If you like what you heard here, you can log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and subscribe and leave us a rating. You can also follow along with Michael's work on social media or by signing up for his newsletter, Still Life, at tinyletter.com still life. You can also keep up with us on social media at at theopoeticscast or tweet at me at at tdburnett. Also, don't forget to check out our sponsors, ARC, at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom, create beauty, and make peace, everyone.